Niebuhr the Politician? Coming up on the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast. You're listening to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Road Niebuhr. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Well, today we're taking a little break from our trek through Niebuhr's classic work, Beyond Tragedy, and we're turning our attention to kind of bringing Niebuhr up to speed a little bit. We love talking the history of Niebuhr and the quest of trying to get to, to the root of his theological and philosophical projects, but we also love bringing Niebuhr into today's conversations as well, how he can be applied to the things we in this country face daily and the state, local, and national politics that affect so many people's lives on a daily basis. Well, to do this today, we will be discussing a new book coming out, hopefully in the beginning of 2023, that is called Reinhold Niebuhr and Politics, and we are delighted and so very excited to be joined today by its author, Eli Valentin. Eli is a busy fellow. He is lecturer at the Union Theological Seminary in New York and at Iona College. He is a contributing columnist for the Gotham Gazette, uh, largely focusing on Latino politics in New York, and is a frequent guest uh, political analyst at Univision New York and New York One News. His writing has also appeared in the Journal of Hispanic Latino Theology, the Political Theology Network, City and State NY, and the Living Pulpit. And Eli has served as a political advisor to numerous elected officials across the country and is the editor of Sermons from the Latino Latina Pulpit. I also, by the way, see he's a faculty member or in some ways associated uh, with the Hispanic Theological Initiative. My goodness, Eli, quite the rundown. You look about as busy as Papa Reinhold himself. Um, what a pleasure to have you. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. An honor. Good, good. Now, Eli, we've, uh, we've had a very casual relationship in the Twitterverse. Uh, from a distance, I see what you're doing in New York, and my admiration has grown for you with uh, just about every interaction we've had and everything I've seen you write and tweet about. Now, this is a total shot in the dark. But when we started engaging with one another, I had this thought always burning in the back of my mind. This guy looks extremely familiar. Um, when I saw that you taught at Union, I had convinced myself that we had somehow crossed paths while, while I was there, maybe. Um, were, did you happen to be a grad assistant there or a lecturer at Union back in 2006 to 2008? Um, I believe I was... in. Yeah, 2008, I actually offered a course called, uh, I believe it was called Spanish for Ministry. Nice. Um, and that was in 08. And, uh, and you know, right before, I believe I, yeah, I also did a field education seminar with uh, Karen Bernstein. She's no longer at Union, but she was the head of uh, field education at Union. Gotcha. And for, I believe, yeah, for a whole academic year or two, I was the, uh, the co-lecturer for a field education seminar. So yeah, you, uh, I, I, I'm sure we did cross paths. I thought I saw, it's, <laughs> it's a little school 
everybody hangs out there in the the little courtyard right yeah. i'm sure that i saw you you were at new york theological seminary too for a while were you well i taught there uh yeah i taught there for a couple of years as well okay that time yeah that share that shares a, a campus with union actually did they still i from what i remember they did a prison um educational program i wonder if they're still doing that do you know anything about that yeah, they, they are still doing that. It's at the uh, Sing Sing Correctional Facility um, in New York. And yeah, they, I mean, it's, it's a really unique program. They offer, uh, they offer master's programs to uh, inmates that have completed their undergraduate degree and are interested in theological study. So it's, um, it's incredible. Yeah, I, you know, I, it is incredible. I'm not, I, I haven't heard of, um, I mean, there may be other theological seminaries that may be doing something like it. I, I just, I have not heard of any. Yeah. So it, it is a, a really fascinating program. What a great idea. Yeah. Um, well, cool. So for our audience, um, Eli has been gracious enough to send us ahead of time a very detailed kind of snapshot of his forthcoming book, Reinhold Niebuhr in Politics. And I got to say, by the looks of this thing, it's going to be quite the contribution to Niebuhr studies and political theology in general. And I'm so excited to, to discuss it with you, Eli. And I'm, I'm so I'm so excited to read, you know, the final copy. Um, now, the way this is going to work for our audience, very simple. We've read this in advance and we've come up with questions for Eli. And we're just going to kind of go in order, uh, me and then Zach and then Aaron. And uh, hopefully we'll come out the other side with a good and uh, fruitful conversation about what Eli is doing in Nieberland. So I'll get us kicked off with a softball, Eli. So first, why Reinhold Niebuhr? How did you get into him? And why is he such a focus for you? This is a funny story. Well, yeah, a little funny. Funny in the sense that I, I became interested in Niebuhr when I was about 18 years old. Uh, so I was, I remember being right out of high school and, and, and my fascination really begins there. Um, I was fortunate, now I am fortunate to be the younger brother of, uh, of a theologian, uh, Benjamin Valentin. Uh, he's now teaching at Boston College so um, my brother, Ben, he is 11 years older than I am. So, so obviously he, he started, uh, you know, theological study well before I did. And uh, so, so, so really my initial introduction to Niebuhr was prior to 18, just hearing his name uh, from, from the, the lips of, of my brother. But it was about 18 that I... Um, that I started reading Niebuhr on my own. And I actually started with an edited volume by Larry Rasmussen, yeah. who was also at Union. And he did a, uh, an anthology or, or an edited uh, volume based on Niebuhr's writings mm. uh, for Fortress Press. So that was my, my real first introduction I to I think Niebuhr. I have that. Yeah. You have that? Yeah, yeah I think I do. It, 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 I mean, it was late eighties. I have it here somewhere behind me, but um, so, but what really fascinated me about Niebuhr was the fact that he was so immersed in the political world. Yeah. And I was always fascinated by politics and, um, and its significance on, on people's lives. And when I saw that Niebuhr was so immersed in the political world, I was like, hey, I mean, he's a, an ethicist, a Christian ethicist, a theologian. 
immersed in a political world, I was like, I got to read more about this guy. And so that's really how it began for me. Oh. And, and it's, a, it's a, a journey that has not ended. Beautiful. Zach? I mean, I just want to start off by saying, you know, reading this, it, there's something about like just the idea behind the book, right? You're trying to, it seems like you're trying to grasp what it is about Niebuhr's methodology that caused him to engage politics in a way that like a lot of theologians didn't and still don't. There is a huge population in America who are, are I would say, committed Christians, but not committed to the idea of justice in their community. And it's almost like there's just a disconnect. And I guess, what do you see in Niebuhr, like almost like a something about him that kind of can bridge that gap? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I say in the introduction to the book is that um, justice is the thread that brings everything together for Niebuhr. Um, and in fact, I would say that um, that is largely a result of his, his Christian background. So in other words, being Christian means striving for justice. And that is a, a nonpartisan reality. It's a, um, it, it, you know, doesn't matter where we stand uh, within the ideological spectrum or the theological spectrum. Um, justice is what should guide us. Uh, or, you know, justice in, in, the, in the sense, obviously, that it is, it is uh, love, love in action, right? Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I think that that in itself, I think one can find an ecumenical key, if you will. Uh, and, and I mean, obviously, Niebuhr doesn't describe it that way, but I think it's, it's there underneath hmm. his thought and, and, and action. And, and I believe that for Niebuhr, one of the ways to strive toward that is, is, through, the, is, is through politics. And um, when I was considering this book, my, the first question I asked myself was, is, is there anything, there's so much written about Niebuhr, right? I mean, e even when he was alive, there was, a, I believe in 1956, I don't know if it was the first dissertate, dissertation written on Niebuhr, but there was a dissertation written on Niebuhr's political thought back in 1956. He was still alive. In fact, you know, those were some of his, I guess, the, the latter peak years of, of Niebuhr's right, um, academic work. So I thought, well, what, what can I contribute? And what I thought about was precisely that, that issue, right, uh, Zach? How does Niebuhr's politics or, or his idea of justice work its way into his politics, but not his political philosophy, but in terms of his political work. Mm -hmm. And I thought that perhaps we can say a little bit more about his political work. Uh, there's plenty said about his political philosophy, yeah. um, but what do we know about Niebuhr's work as a journalist, for instance? Yeah. Uh, what has been said about Niebuhr's electoral political work. I mean, Niebuhr was, I, I proudly say this to all my uh, political friends in New York, Niebuhr was one of the co-founders of the Liberal Party in the state of New York. Um, and, and this is in the early 40s in response to another political, third political party in New York, the American Labor Party, 
And, you know, Niebuhr was early on a, a bit involved with the ALP, but leaves the ALP because of the communist infiltration. And he forms, you know, the, um, the, the labor part, the, I'm sorry, the liberal party with, with other, with labor leaders and other intellectuals. But um, I, I wanted to explore that. I, I just, I just think that as much as, uh, oh, uh, you know, much has been said about Niebuhr, obviously, uh, but I, I just haven't found much said about his his practical political work and yeah. and, and how justice is really uh, the, the driving force behind that type of work. And I think I think just in reading this outline, it, it actually was I was like, man, like this this guy is hitting right on what I want to know about Niebuhr because I think one of the things that fascinates me about just Niebuhr in general is actually his the story of his life. I mean, I love his works too, um, but. I love this, like what he did, you know what I mean? And it, it's kind of hard to encapsulate like what he did politically. Cause like you could just state he was part of this and he's part of that and he's part of this, but like, what was his methodology? Because coming from that background, like that more, Hey, just stay out of politics, keep to keep to preaching the gospel as it is. Don't, don't get too involved. So you can preach to both sides. You can come out of that kind of starving for, especially after you read Niebuhr. I mean, very convicting, you know what I mean? To read him and, and have his, view of sin kind of impact you and be like, oof, you know, my, my view of politics should definitely be impacted. Um, uh, Eli brings up an interesting irony in that for somebody who was so, who so prioritized putting his theological and philosophical boots on the ground, as it were, making this on the ground practical for how much he did that, we still today want to abstract him and turn him into ah. just a theologian that we're just discussing his philosophical and theological views now. But what Eli is saying, no, let's talk about the action that came out of this, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like the thing I'm looking for, you know, it's, it's ironic. It's almost like I've been searching the works of Niebuhr deep, you know, deeply trying to find this, this thing. What was your methodology? Like what, what caused you to go? And cause I feel like I, sometimes I just find myself sitting at my church as a pastor, just kind of like, okay, like I need to get involved in politics, but like, how, like, what Where do I do? do? Yeah. Like, I'm just like, sitting here like, okay, I'm ready. I read the book. I'm ready. And <laughs> <laughs> It's funny you say that Zach, because, um, you know, one could say that, that his political work began during his, um, pastorate in Detroit. Um, you know, and, and Niebuhr followers will, will know well that he was appointed to, to co-lead, he was he was a, I believe, yeah, co a co-chair of a mayoral commission on on race. This is, you know, what twenties, uh, early to mid twenties in Detroit, um, and some would say that was his early introduction to to the uh, practical political world, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, so so Zach, I think we do see, and and from his leaves from. The Notebook of a Tame Cynic, his um, his uh, the, the publication of some of his journal entries during his Detroit years, we see the, the beginnings of what we see in the mature Niebuhr later on, but it really begins there in Detroit. And, um, you know, it is often said that uh, Niebuhr was, was not around much. Uh, interestingly enough, right, he was not around much and not around in the church much, at least at, at one point 
his mother was uh, kind of left his mother in charge of, of a lot of, especially the administrative work in the church. But that's because Niebuhr was all over the place, um, as he always was. And um, yeah, so there was, you know, an early involvement there. And I will also note he was uh, one of the chairs of the uh, Detroit committee for, uh, what was his name? Lafayette, I believe, who uh, was a presidential candidate, a socialist. And so I believe this was in 1924. That was his, another introduction to electoral political work. Which and it all begins in Detroit. So, so Zach, I think we do see um, a model uh, in 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 Niebuhr for how uh, a a pastor can can put on that hat. And in fact, I believe it's in Leaves that he mentions that you know the pastor wears many hats. The pastor is at once a sociologist, a a a therapist. Um, a political scientist, and you name it. And I think we see that directly from his, his work. Um, hey, y'all, I haven't said hello yet. So thanks for being here. Um, loved your little uh, introduction to your new book, forthcoming book. Um, so my question, the answer you just given to Zach's question actually might kind of meet where my question kind of goes from. Um, but your project really seems to be focused on the areas we might take Niebuhr for granted in. Mm-hmm. We've already been talking like, well, we, we treat him as an abstraction. Um, and you're focusing on particular concrete things where Niebuhr brings his philosophy into the world to affect some change. So um, I know you've already kind of spoken on this, but would you care to maybe explain a bit further ways in which we take Niebuhr for granted? And how might we remedy those uh, those t- taking for granted things? <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate the question, Aaron. Um, so, so, I, and I think, and Zach pointed to this, and it, it, I, I, I mentioned this in my introduction to the book that what we see in um, in Niebuhr is, I be, it's it's unique among theologians, right? And it, I have not, I don't, I, I, t- I, I'll say this after Niebuhr, I'm not sure um, who else can, who, who else can, has, has, see, I, I'm just, I'm just thinking about some, I mean, I can, I think about Ron Sider who recently passed away. Uh-huh. Um, he was, he was really immersed in, in the political realm uh, to some capacity, especially right, the founding of Evangelicals for Social Action, and I could think of you know Peter Heltzel, who was actually at New York Theological Seminary at one point, but I can't think of anyone that was so immersed in in politics the way Niebuhr was. Um, I mean, we're talking about a a man that founded a political party. Mm a man that founded the Union for Democratic Action, which then becomes Americans for Democratic Action, which by the way, still exists. Wow. Uh, it just doesn't have the influence it had during Niebuhr's time. And I mean, just think about the people that were involved in, in the ADA, um, Niebuhr, Arthur Schlesinger, mm-hmm. um, uh, the former vice president, um, Hubert Humphrey, uh, Adley Stevenson. I mean, these were some really heavy hitters and 
you know, Niebuhr started, Niebuhr really started a union for democratic action. Yeah. And, um, and if one examines his papers, one really sees the level of involvement. I mean, you know, I've, I've done a number of trips down to DC and it, it is incredible. I mean, Niebuhr was so immersed, even with the mundane things of um, uh, budget matters, you know, cr creating the budget for the UDA. I mean, uh, fundraising letters that, you know, he did by himself. Um, he chaired the meetings. Uh, I, so, I mean, he was a one-man show at, at one point with the UDA, which then becomes the ADA. So um, this so this is the type of stuff that I'm like, that I, I was telling myself, there, there's something here, as we have said, that's really unexplored. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Aaron, I, I thought you put it so nicely. It, it, it's really how, it, it's really discovering how philosophy enters the political yeah. world in practical ways. Yeah. And we, we often miss the practical part of Niebuhr, right? No, I think you're completely right. And I think just in terms of politics in general, there is a tendency, especially on mainstream media and stuff, to abstract political problems to yeah. such a degree that they just to talk about them seems a bit like, well, what relevance? You, you kind of pose a problem and it's more of a, here's a political problem that we have to solve. And it's so abstract and devoid of any content in reality. And all it really does is just, okay, this is a democratic issue, yeah. not a Republican issue. And that's, this is yeah. kind of a feeds into a tribalism type of thing. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I'm wondering, Eli, maybe if we can just jump into this question real quick. Um, so, I mean, the practice you, you're doing with writing this forthcoming book is trying to, I guess, remedy that issue as well. You're trying to take these political problems that Niebuhr solved and actually trying to provide concrete solutions too so what, what ways do you think what you're trying to do for neighbor um can help someone like me or zach or cliff or yourself or anybody in america do that as well or follow that example so the last chapter i i offer neighbor in the last chapter i offer neighbor as a model for the public theologian mm -hmm. um and you know i i you know the the uh the political theologian is another term that's been widely used. We can use that interchangeably, public theology or public theologian and political theologian. Mm -hmm. um, I, so I offer Niebuhr up as a model. And in the book, what I, what I do see is um, I, offer, I offer up three specific models. One is um, Niebuhr as a journalist or as a pseudo-journalist, right? Um, and, and, and I'm not... Just talking about Niebuhr as uh, Niebuhr writing articles for refereed academic journals, mm -hmm. which he did, but but it is more Niebuhr as a writer in, for instance, the Nation, in the Atlantic, or writing for the New Republic, or even founding Christianity in Crisis, which mm -hmm. was um, a a periodical that had tens of thousands of subscribers um and he wrote about everything i mean yeah. you know i i don't th there wasn't a topic that niebuhr did not touch so everything from the domestic to the foreign it, th there was nothing that was left untouched i mean niebuhr even wrote about some of the formal opinions of supreme court justices 
One of them was his friend, uh, Felix Frankfurter, who, by the way, there's a, there's a wonderful biography that, that has just been released um, on Felix Frankfurter. And it's written by a Georgetown uh, professor. And, you know, it's, it's so funny because I've, I've read, um, I, I have bought several releases, new releases. That's one of them. And, and the first thing I do is I go to the index to see if they, if they were, if they were sure to mention Reinhold Niebuhr. And of course he was there. Um, I also um, bought another book by the George, uh, Georgetown historian, by Michael Kazin, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. And this, is, this was released some months ago. Um, lo and behold, Reinhold Niebuhr is here. Uh, wow. So, so it's a man, and, and part of it is because of his influence, right, through his writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I believe, Aaron, to get to your, your question that um, Niebuhr as a journalist is really, is, is, one, is, a, is one model yeah. that, that many of us uh, should follow. Um, also, the, the, another chapter is Niebuhr as a um, interlocutor uh, with, with labor activists, labor leaders. Um, and going back to the justice issue, economic justice was pivotal for Reinhold Niebuhr. And that meant, and again, it was more than just a philosophical idea, but it, it, you know, Niebuhr translate, translated that into direct political action. And it meant being an informal advisor to many of these labor leaders like Dave Dubinsky, like Alex Rose, um, like the, um, the uh, union president of the um, United Auto Workers. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he was really involved with a lot of the labor issues of the day. Um, and then obviously his work within electoral politics. I mean, look at this. Niebuhr was at one point a, the socialist candidate in his congressional district at Union. And he also ran for state Senate. Interestingly enough, and, and unfortunately there's not much material on this, but he also served as a campaign manager for a local candidate in New York City. I mean, that's how involved he was in electoral politics. He's all uh, over the place. My he's goodness. all over the place. So yeah. what I offer up is again, Niebuhr as a model for the public theologian, um, slash pastor, right? Um, and, and specifically those, those three things, right? Niebuhr as a journalist, um, as someone immersed in electoral politics and also um, uh, on matters uh, dealing with labor and, and economic issues. So, I mean, Wonderful. just Niebuhr's the man, right? I mean, and again, there's, there are very few people that have followed um, that paradigm that Niebuhr offers mm-hmm. us. So, uh, Eli, my, my next question kind of goes along with a little bit of what we've been talking about, and it goes along with your chapter on Niebuhr the Journalist. And I have a quote here where you say, quote, until now, no one has written a book on the practical political activities of Niebuhr and how his theological outlook influenced his political undertakings. Um, now, to my knowledge, this is absolutely true, um, no one to my knowledge has gotten into Niebuhr as a political operative. Um, But along with that, I have rarely seen Niebuhr's journalistic endeavors as being a primary focus in itself. The way I, to my shame, the way I have always treated Niebuhr is, 
Well, Niebuhr wrote these five or six really big, important books here. And then he has hundreds of little essays kind of smushed between these that show, you know, his development of thought and some practical remarks. But all this has me thinking, like, what do we miss out on by viewing Niebuhr's journalistic career as secondary or even tertiary uh, to what we consider kind of the real stuff, you know, that he's trying to do? And thinking about what your contributions overall here in this book, what they're, what I think they're going to be, um, do you think that you're basically introducing a new way to read Niebuhr by pushing Niebuhr the journalist to the front? Mm, great question. Perhaps, um, you know, I guess when, when one writes, one never knows how, one, how it will be received and, and where it goes from there, right? One just produces, uh, produces the work and, and it, it, in some ways it doesn't become yours once it's, it, it is out there. Um, perhaps it may be, you know, and it, interestingly enough, I think the only one that really has said something about Niebuhr as a journalist has been Ronald Stone, mm. who is actually uh, Niebuhr's last graduate student and, uh, and really assisted Niebuhr his last years um, teaching um, a, an ethics seminar uh, at Union and Stone does write something in, in a couple of his books, including his last one on Niebuhr in the 60s, which is, I guess, a few years old now. Um, and so there, there is one section of a chapter that is devoted uh, to Niebuhr as a journalist during his, the latter part of his career. Uh, so uh, yeah, it, it is unexplored and I hope I hope that it can at least whet the appetite of other Niebuhr scholars to to dig into Niebuhr's uh, journalistic work. It's just uh, interesting to look at yeah. what he becomes when you take kind of what we've always treated as the background and put it in the foreground, you know, and mm -hmm. to see how that actually opens up his political work much more than if we're just reading, ironically, Irony of American History. Like, even though it's very political, the essays that are kind of leading up to that are the stuff that's on the ground, talking, you know, policy, talking public opinion, all that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that, that's, that's what made Niebuhr a man of his times, right? Of his time. The, um, and, and, and it has led some folk to say that perhaps Niebuhr's relevancy into the future uh, would be reduced because so much of his, especially journalistic writing, were really uh, responses to issues that Niebuhr was dealing with at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the contrary, I mean, look, here we are in 2022 and we're talking about Niebuhr. Uh, so I, I believe, I mean, I believe Niebuhr will always be relevant um, even by the simple fact that Niebuhr, if anything, offers a model for how this type of work you know, if you're in the academic world, or even if you're in the pastoral, you know, parish ministry uh, world, he offers a model for how it can be done. And, and, um, and again, and his, his writing is, is one vehicle. And if we look at the corpus of his writing, right, the, the topics that he was dealing with, um, again, relevant, uh, he had something to say, he had something to contribute both in, in written word, but also in, in action. So 
Yeah, so I hope we can explore this even more. I look at it both as a model, uh, but also I want to dig more deeply into the type of themes that Niebuhr was dealing with. Um, and and again, there, there are a lot of economic issues that Niebuhr deals with, uh, obviously in foreign policy. Um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing what one encounters when reading Niebuhr, but um, I remember reading one um, editorial where Niebuhr speaks about military strategy. Oh my gosh. Military strategy. I mean, and, I'm, and it, was, it was a really thoughtful piece. It's, it, wow. It sounded like um, it, it came from the pen of, of someone that was deeply steeped in military strategy that, that perhaps was trained by, by the US armed forces. Oh, I mean, it was just really thoughtful, but again, it just goes to show the, um, his versatility, but also the use of the pen as a way to contribute, right? To, to political discourse and, and also, by the way, ecclesial discourse. Um, I don't think that there was anything Niebuhr did, you know, did not touch. But, but again, the, the idea I, I, that I hope for is to see that, you know, journal, journalism for, for Niebuhr was a tool um, that the theologian can utilize to really uh, be even more impactful. Yeah, and, you know, it's really interesting because I, I've, I've always pondered since starting to read Niebuhr like his, his theology, right? I think there's a lot of people that actually share his theological background and ideas and stuff. And I kept wondering like, how did he garner so much influence? Mm. And then reading just, it's so funny because I've read so much of Niebuhr's stuff, read biographies, read, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. And it's so funny because that, that journalism aspect, it made me realize that like he was in, you know, the thing that people were reading on Saturday morning he was he had a little article there, you know what I mean? Or, or, you know, on a Monday morning or whatever, whatever, whenever they were reading their, their paper or their, you know, journals or whatever, um, he was in the minds of a lot of people and it probably wouldn't have been as effective if he had just done books, but that, that journalistic aspect really put him into the psyche of people. And, and he had his own in-person organizations and his own publication. And I mean, this guy was just constantly at work, his whole job being getting in the minds of the public. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and the impact is, is still felt today. You'd be surprised how many people I come across in, um, that are so, in some ways tied to the political world, world in New York. And I'm, obviously they're, they're much older now, but it, you'd be surprised how many would say, oh yeah, I, I remember speaking to Niebuhr. And I'm like, whoa, really? And, or uh, just, and, and I'm talking about folk in, in the labor world, in the electoral political world, and obviously they're, they're ministers and, and, and scholars, right? That, uh, that either, uh, a lot of them ha have, have passed away now that, that uh, dealt with him directly, but, um, but many that knew, right? That, that knew someone, that knew Niebuhr. And so it, it, it's, it's amazing that that influence and that connection to even the Niebuhr name is still, uh, it's still around here in New York. It's, it's really something, but yeah, he was all over the place. I mean, we've heard stories about Niebuhr uh, going to, to class with, with his uh, bag and his luggage bag, you know, ready to go right. right after class to, you know, catch a train or plane to go somewhere. 
um, and or to rush to to a meeting in downtown New York. And that's that's who Niebuhr was. And and again, that was part of his his intentional work. So I have a question for you, um, if I can remember here. The um, it's a question that, that kind of comes up on the not on the podcast itself, but in discussions after the podcast, often surrounding politics and how uh, and Niebuhr's approach. I think um, whenever we we have a, a a little group chat where we're constantly going back and forth about you know the happenings in the world and about theology and about you know all sorts of things. Do you think? that Niebuhr tended to prefer like a strategic approach to politics or do you think so I guess I'll put it this way there's one aspect that's idealistic and very um they're going to approach politics they're going to say this is what's right there's no compromises like we need to achieve we need to keep striving to achieve this I have always saw I've always seen Niebuhr more as a strategist he's kind of coming at it from a sidewind all the time and in your exploration of his political approach do you think he kind of did that do you think he kind of took more of a sidewind or do you think he approached it more idealistically more like hey this is what's right I'm going to state it as is so I think Bieber was really pragmatic in the sense that I think he understood there there are certain fights that one need needs to take and directly so there are other fights that perhaps are not winnable and one must know the difference and and in order to know how to engage, uh, so so I you know I I think Niebuhr starts more idealistically, perhaps his Detroit years, into the early part of his Union years, and I and I believe that um, largely a result of of World War II, and the conditions that lead to that. Um, it moves Niebuhr to take a more pragmatic approach to the realities of governing and to politics in general. So, yeah, so I, I do see that. Now, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I was just going to say the reason that that kind of comes up all the time is it actually affects, you know, kind of part of the way we choose to approach even this podcast. Because, you know, we're trying to kind of honor yeah. the memory of Reinhold Niebuhr. And sometimes we have a tendency, because, you know, I, I think Cliff and I are both more we love academics, man. We love to read a good book. We love to engage. And, you know, I don't know, but we, I guess we both tend towards that more. Like we just want to hear from like all these Niebuhr scholars, but you know, sometimes we kind of wonder maybe, maybe we, at least I wonder, um, I'm sure they do too. Maybe we should take a more of a, like a, a, um, a stance, right? We, we engage with a certain, giving people certain tools to engage with the political system in a certain way, instead of, just inviting on people, you know, just just examining his works or something like that. Does that it's, make sense? It's this like, constant tug of war of like, how much do we come in trying to achieve certain political ends versus more having a historical neighbor approach that's more like objective, like trying to stay out of the weeds a little bit type of thing. Is that kind of what you're getting at, Zach? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's funny because it comes up all the time when we're talking about the podcast <laughs> and like the direction we want to take it. Over and over again, it just comes up because... I don't, yeah, and I think that's, but it, but it is linked to how we view, you know, what, what, what Niebuhr did, you know, I mean, at least in my mind is very much linked to, I always very much see him as he, 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 he's kind of always trying to approach it and try to get it to, he, he wants to actually achieve the goal. And I think that sometimes he, he isn't always so idealistic about things. Um, and I think that helps, I think it helps him be influential or it helped him in his time. Oh, yeah. 
I, I really, and I think that's what um, attracted folk like Schlesinger to Niebuhr because the, I, I, like Schlesinger was someone that I believe was of the same mindset um, that, that approach political realities in, in the way you describe it, Zach. I, so I believe, yeah, that's, that's um, definitely the, the middle to, the, to late Niebuhr um, and, and his overall approach to yeah, politics broadly. Like I think of, I think of Niebuhr when I think of his political strategy. I always think of William Wilberforce and when they did the, and this is a weird, a weird connection. But when they did the, when they finally got, um, had to do with the slave trade and getting the slave trade ended, they they did it with flags. Like you know, they used basically they they made it illegal to bear certain flags, and basically that made the slave trade impossible to continue. And I always think of like, man, that was such a good strategy. Like that was such a good idea. And like, I, I feel like a lot of the approach that I find in Niebuhr and his politics is he's always kind of approaching it in that way where it's like the other side kind of has to capitulate. You know, he's always kind of trying to put them in a bind, always trying to kind of um, outmaneuver them, out strategize them. <laughs> well, that, that, that definitely sounds like the, like the Niebuhr we know. Yep. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I wonder sometimes what Niebuhr would say about the rise of democratic socialists in America, because I believe that the democratic socialists politically, Niebuhr would describe as, as idealists. And, and while, I, while I believe that Niebuhr would be, even the, the, the later Niebuhr would be sympathetic, um, and in fact held many of the, the you know, socialist sensibilities, he was a socialist early on, but I, I think that he would probably disagree with much of their political strategy. Hmm. Interesting. Um, that is really interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I really I really think that, especially that I would say the middle to, to, to the late latter years of, of Niebuhr's career. Um, and I, I, I believe Niebuhr would say that that's, that's kind of what I, what I, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I can't say revolted against, right? But there, there was clearly a shift in Niebuhr, mm -hmm. uh, theologically and politically. He would still see them as allies. I think that would be fair Absolutely. to say. Yes, but it's tactics. It's coming tactics. down to tactics, strategy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think some of that, but I think that's Niebuhr they, I love actually. And I think that that's actually one of the things that I'm trying to get at or understand about Niebuhr, is. On the one sense, I think that, you know, and I think I've heard in political just discourse, even on Twitter, some people find his thing to be too, uh, his approach to politics to be too institutional, too tied to, you know, in, in, establishment. In establishment interests, so on and so forth. But at the same time, I'm like, man, but he got so much stuff done. You know what I mean? Like, that, like that's, and it did a lot of good, I think, you know what I mean? Did a lot of really good things. And so it's, you know, I, I think he, but I think sometimes he was probably willing to sacrifice his ideals a little bit, you know what I mean? And not um, maintain them with the same purity that some people want to maintain those, those approaches. Right. right. Uh, Let's turn to the, the DSA guy in our ranks. <laughs> I'm not part of the DSA, but. <laughs> He's sim yeah. Uh, Sorry. Sympathetic to them, but, Sorry uh, to put you on the spot, Aaron. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's me up. I have two questions. Eli, I have no idea which one to ask because they're like both really relevant at this point. So I, I think first I'll jump back a bit because a few moments ago, you mentioned, you kind of critique the view 
that some people might bring up that, well, what relevance does Niebuhr have for today when he was saturated in a particular context, 1920s up to the 50s, whatnot, right? What, what relevance does all that crap have to do with today? Um, and maybe a bit of a pushback to you, and you can respond how you want. I, I'm not, I don't know how I feel about this myself, but your model of Niebuhr as a journalist, right? Like if, if that is a model for all of us today, how does that function in an age where a former president has villainized an entire group of people for being journalists? And when you have the rise of right-wing extremism, right-wing Christian nationalism, all demonizing information, how does a Niebuhrian model uh, break through that sort of, um, for lack of better terms, yeah. <laughs> well, the first thing I would say is they should read Children of Light, Children of Darkness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a vindication of right democracy. Um, it, it was his really second major uh, political philosophical work. Uh, so the first, you know, start there. But but I think um, Niebuhr would probably say perhaps. Um, uh, what, what is it, WWNS, what would Niebuhr say? Uh, <laughs> Niebuhr, Niebuhr would say, perhaps this that's uh, a reason why we should use journalism as a tool even more. Mm. Um, and again, and, and this is where the philosophy comes in, right? And, and obviously his defense of democracy and journalism being, right, one of the, the pillars that contributes to a healthy democracy. Yeah. Um, so I think perhaps, Aaron, that, that question itself uh, points to how um, Niebuhr was able to, to merge these two realities, right? Both in terms of his, his philosophical outlook on the necessity of journalism as a form of expression in a democracy mm-hmm. yeah. and journalism as a tool yeah. Um, to utilize it in order to help strengthen that very democracy, to be able to write, uh, critique those forces that um, Trumpian forces, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that seek to delimit that type of, of yeah. work. So I think perhaps that's where, you know, Niebuhr's philosophy and work converges. Uh, yeah. Well, and- so, yeah. Would you say that also, I mean, I, I was just curious, would you think that in addition to that, that Niebuhr's commitment to biblical terminology and biblical view of the world almost gives him an ability to speak to the, that section of people in a way that a lot of people don't have the, they're going to be using different terminology. It's, it's yeah. almost making them an outsider. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and you know, and, and you all know that, that Niebuhr, regretted, Niebuhr regretted using biblical terminology to describe his theological anthropology. Um, and I believe it's man's nature um, and, and his communities. I believe that's the, the, the name of it, which by the way is a fascinating little book. And, and there he says, you know, if, if there's one thing I could, if, if I could do all over again, it is not to use biblical terminology um, to describe the human reality. And- Wow. 
Yeah, it's it's really something. And that was something he regretted. And I think because he felt that there were some, especially the uh, those that were not religious, that did not take him seriously enough because some felt it was too Christian. It was too hmm. religious to take seriously. So would yeah. he have would he have like idealized his early? This guess I guess there's two ways of like differentiating Niebuhr. You have like the the, the post 1930s Niebuhr. I guess that the era where he turns to the Augustinian version and more biblical theological realm. Would he like idealize his past self pr- prior to that, like the 1930s 1920s Niebuhr? At that point, or like, what would he wish? What if would he have wished to be more like that and not have gone through that more theological stage in his development later on? Interesting. I think perhaps in the use of language, there may be some of that. Um, I I think he was comfortable where he stood philosophically, theologically. Mm. Uh, I think after Moral Man, perhaps. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I just, I just think uh, he would say, yeah, let let me be the that the, the early neighbor in terms of the use of language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's, I guess, less less theological language. Obviously, the the later neighbor we see. Um, well, I, I think he, it was Stone that said that neighbor really didn't deal much with theology in the latter part of his career. His focus was really on social and political philosophy. And we see less of, uh, not that it it didn't exist, but we see less use of religious language. Um, So perhaps in some sense, there is a return to some of the early Niebuhr, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Early union years. Uh, But but yeah, but I think the use of language is probably something he would say, I I could have done that differently. And in fact, he does say it. I, I I gotta I gotta say something here. I have I have so many things going through my mind right now. Okay, for one thing, a part of me wants to be like, "Oh, that was post-stroke Niebuhr. He didn't know what he's talking about." Like <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it does seem to contradict a little bit too, because he did regret a lot of things from earlier during that period where he didn't use the biblical language. Another part is is that I'm just thinking is that the idea of sin really is what opened up his whole understanding of human nature. Right. So I'm almost thinking, okay, maybe he disagreed with the terminology, like maybe he would have redone the terminology, but the concept of, of sin and grace, those would have remained intact. I'm also thinking, I'm sorry, I'm just so many minds about this. And it's, it's really shocking thing to hear because I think because of this last point that I want to make, because I think that's what makes him so effective. Yeah. Is exactly. that biblical language? Kind of like what Zach was talking about earlier. Well, it, what I was going to say is like, it's really funny because I was first introduced to Niebuhr. Well, it's by a CNN, CNN article by a Barack, about uh, Barack Obama's favorite theologian. But after that, I was introduced to him in historical theology at Moody Bible Institute. And they're very careful about the types of theologians that you, you know, there's like a spectrum. Like once you go, once you go too far, you know, like they just chop it off. Like Bonhoeffer is about as far as they go. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and they don't even really truly understand. I mean, a lot of people don't understand quite what Bonhoeffer truly believed or otherwise they probably would have, but Niebuhr makes it into that category, right? There's, there's like everybody beyond Niebuhr and, and Bonhoeffer is like kicked off the boat, but something about Niebuhr and his, the way that he talks about sin and the way that he talks about, 
you know, the destiny of humanity and, and the, the idolatry of humanity really connects with like anybody. I mean, they were all, it's not like they were, we were all reading Niebuhr a ton, but it was like, you know, he was a, he was a main figure that got brought up and they didn't erase him. You know, they and didn't I just, just think oh, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of work for <laughs> even an atheist or agnostic or somebody just more secular. It doesn't take a whole lot to just get what he's doing, you know, with the, with the Christian language, but mm. I don't know. By the way, uh, Sean Casey and I, um, and we, I, you know, we, we mentioned Sean Casey before uh, this recording. Um, but so Sean Casey and I, it's, it's funny. We had a conversation about Niebuhr one time and we, we, it, it was like we both blurted this out at the same time. And we both said that the Niebuhr's doctrine of sin is, is pivotal. To understand, in fact, it's, I believe, foundational to Niebuhr's political philosophy, mm-hmm. um, both in terms of, yeah, political philosophy more broadly, but also his understanding of international relations. Yes. The doctrine of sin is at the center of both those things. Well, I'm just thinking like, because you were talking before how he did get away from the Christian language and more focus on more politics proper later on in life. But my thinking is, well, he already did the theological work. So he sets up nature and destiny of man right after that. He basically nature and destiny, nature and destiny is basically implied in the background of children of light, children of darkness. It's implied also in the background of irony of American history. Like the, he sets up these themes where almost Everything that you read after Nature and Destiny, it helps to read that to understand these later works. So I'm almost thinking like, even when Christian language isn't there, the concepts are still in the background. Right. Absolutely. Now, I got, uh, so my, my, my next question, um, Eli, by the way, this is a blast. I love talking to Eli. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, in your, third, in your third chapter, you really dive into Niebuhr's practical, historical, and kind of on-the-ground work in New York politics. I know Dorian speaks of how Niebuhr was making union faculty nervous because he, can't, he comes in and actually starts practicing what he preaches about politics, and he starts bringing students along with him. Um, and this is making everybody nervous. Um, now, you say that some of his most influential work was most on display within the copious amounts of correspondences that he had with political figures in New York. I'm sure you've read uh, your, your fair share quite a bit of, uh, of these correspondences. Is there any one or two relationships that Niebuhr had within New York that were particularly revelatory about what Niebuhr was trying to do in the labor, in the labor movement or politics in general in New York? Oh, fascinating question. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would say uh, for some reason, I, I see that Bieber gravitated to labor leaders. Hmm. Um, so in New York, Alex Rose and Dave Dubinsky were natural allies for Niebuhr. Hmm. And um, so th- that relationship stands out and it stands out because these there's some labor leaders that I mean you can't escape electoral politics you can't es- escape politics more broadly uh, but these especially these two uh, labor leaders they were heavily involved in in the electoral world 
and um, and I and I think that appealed to Niebuhr. So so I would start there when it comes to Niebuhr and and his direct mm -hmm. immersion in the political world, especially in New York. I I believe it really starts with with labor leaders. So Alex Rose was the head of the uh, the garments worker union, um, and I mean these were. They, they started the Liberal Party together. Right. And, and the Liberal Party became so influential in New York politics, both impacting federal elections. So it really forms um, in the latter part of FDR's years. FDR's wife, Eleanor, was behind the scenes pushing for the start of the Liberal Party. Because prior to that, the American Labor Party were supportive of FDR. But once there's word that, that there are communists among their ranks, oh, yeah. um, Eleanor Roosevelt wants to disassociate her Steps husband out. from this yeah. affiliation. Um, so she is, once she hears what's happening, she, uh, behind the scenes, she's motivating them to get it going. And uh, because she saw the Liberal Party as um, another third party that could support her her husband, uh, her husband's reelection efforts. So, so the, the uh, Liberal Party has some of that as part of its initiation and Niebuhr's right there in the middle of it all. It's, it's amazing, Eli, like, I'm, like there's such a, Niebuhr has so many of these contrasting images that can be shocking to some people. So like, I remember the first time I saw Niebuhr's identification card for the War Department. Mm. OK, um, him rubbing shoulders with people in the Pentagon, him riding back and forth with Martin Luther King like you have. Him, and now we're hearing he's sitting in rooms with labor leaders. Yes. OK, like what broad what a broad spectrum of influence this one theologian. We haven't even talked about the church. Yeah. You know uh, what a broad uh, net that this man has. It's incredible. Mm. It, it really is, it really is. Just, uh, 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 just another point on the Liberal Party. Um, it, it was interesting. So there was a, this book here, uh, Paul Merkley. Um, this, this is such an important text on Niebuhr. It's Reinhold Niebuhr, A Political Account. Um, and it's by Paul Merkley. Paul Merkley was a, um, a historian. Um, so really wasn't um, in the, theological world but um so interestingly enough um Merkley Niebuhr tells Merkley that once the liberal party was formed he would never vote for a democratic candidate um on the democratic party line he would only vote for them on the liberal party line not many people know that it's here in the Merkley text um, but it, it just goes to show how, how much he loved the Liberal Party and, and the work that he put in. I mean, he put in a lot of work um, in terms of fundraising activities, in terms of uh, supporting, uh, advising candidates directly, um, traveling the state to campaign for candidates. He would take time out, of, even during the academic year, um, to campaign to he will go on the campaign trail and help liberal party candidates up and down the ballot um I, I just had to point that out because that i mean that was just Niebuhr and and his love for for a party that he helped form interesting
yeah. you know, I got to ask, you know, being a pastor, uh, sometimes you can come away from reading Niebuhr and thinking that basically he felt like the church was somewhat useless in the mm. of achieving anything positive for politics. He almost just, got, he doesn't abandon it, but, you know, in some reading, he's kind of bleak about it. You know, he's real bleak about basically, I remember, I think it's, I think it's in Leaves where he's basically like, it, it, it helps people to be moral. You know, that's the role of the church. It helps yeah. keep a, a state of morality. What do you think, you know, because you've obviously taken a much broader swath into his politics. What role do you think he, he thought the local church could play positively in, you know, achieving good politics, achieving justice in their community? Uh, I'm glad you asked that question because, because I've, thought, I've, thought a lot about, I, I've thought a lot about that question. Um, by the way, there's an article out there whether, um, asking whether Niebuhr had an ecclesiology. Um, and um, I don't know if he did. Uh, I, I don't know if that question or doctrine even interested Niebuhr to a certain extent. I'm not sure, but um, I, I'm going to, I don't know if there's anything positive I can say. My interpretation, especially of the, of the later years in, in Niebuhr's career, is that I think Niebuhr lost hope in viewing the church as a base of social transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, I, I read, I, I've been reading for the book just to see if I find anything that, that could be useful, but I've been reading um, some of the letters that he exchanged with his wife, Ursula. And she actually wrote an article um, after he, he had passed away um, saying that uh, here and there, Niebuhr would go to um, an Episcopalian church. She was Episcopalian, right? She was part of the Church of England. Um, and she, she, she specifically mentions uh, a, a one specific Sunday that they decide to go to St. John the Divine. Cliff would know where that is. Yeah. Um, up uh, in, near Columbia University, but it's over there on 110th Street and, and Amsterdam Avenue. Uh, I believe St. John the Divine is, in terms of the physical structure, it is the largest church in the country. It's massive. It's and- massive. But she she mentions that Niebuhr said, okay, you know, I'll go. With, it was like he was reluctant to go. He gave in to her. But the condition was that they would have to go after the homily was finished. Because he felt that um, the... The, the symbolic significance of Holy Communion preached more of the gospel than the homily itself. Yeah. And um, now, and th- there were theological reasons why, right, he would say that, but I think that when it comes to the, the church's immersion or even quest f- for tr- social transformation, I think that Niebuhr probably saw... Um, the practical political work as having the potential to impact and influence more Uh than the church. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have a more positive view of of Niebuhr. But, but yeah, I think that's, that's, at least that's how I read, especially the, the, the latter part of his career. I think it's quite fascinating for two reasons. One, just on a personal level, I, at my church, I've been moving our church towards like weekly, we, we moved towards weekly communion because I think it's, 
I think it's a much more valuable like spiritual development tool than the homily, you know, the, the sermon personally. But it's also interesting to me because in some ways what propelled Niebuhr, I mean, obviously there were other albums, there was his books, there was his, but his position as a pastor, as a preacher is what propelled him to this place of such great influence to do such powerful things in society. You know, and it's like it, people probably, I'm just guessing, but people probably trusted him and trusted what he said versus other people because he was a preacher. You know what I mean? Like in his style and his, his approach, to, I mean, I'm just speculating here. But I imagine, you know, people trust me as a pastor sometimes before they even know anything about me. You know what I mean? And they, I mean, obviously the opposite happens as well. But even like the way that I approach like a speech, the way I approach like, you know, the preaching style, you know, it's just so interesting to me that that is part of what propelled him to where he was and the influence that he had. I almost wonder if he's kind of blind to that, you know, if he just almost uh, didn't recognize the power that that carried. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just a quick note on, on Niebuhr and the church, um, I was at a, uh, I was fortunate to, to meet his daughter, Elizabeth, hmm. uh, before she passed. Uh, she was at Union for a uh, conference on um, her father, Reinhold. Uh, this was, uh, actually, she, she was at two conferences. One, one, it was uh, on, uh, I think, after one of her book on Serenity, it's titled Serenity, I believe, right? And then she was invited again once they, uh, the, the documentary came out and she was part of the, the panel. She was one of the panelists. But I remember one of those occasions, I, I forget which one, that she mentions that she believes Niebuhr is, uh, at least in terms of mainline denominations especially, there's more of an appreciation now for, for Niebuhr than there was when he was around. Hmm. And in fact, she actually said um, many churches purposely did not invite Niebuhr mm -hmm. because um, most, most of the clergy disagreed with, they thought Niebuhr was much too radical, much too liberal hmm. to invite, to preach in their, at their churches. So, um, so she says Niebuhr was not liked uh, uh, among many of the clergy and, and that is one of the reasons why uh, most of his sermons, especially the middle part of his career, took place in uh, university chapels and seminary chapels rather than churches. Mm -hmm. So he was not really embraced by many of the, the pastors then, which is really interesting. So great. So Eli, so you make a pretty strong connection between Niebuhr's concepts of justice and his theology. Um, so this is my question to you. So is there something to, to Niebuhr's concept of justice and his theology that is just immutable insofar as it can't be transferred to other political ideologies like conservatism that is just kind of like stenched on left-wing politics? Does is it anchored sense? to labor? Anchored, anchored yeah. to labor, anchored to left, left movements. You, you know, there, there are conservatives that, that claim Niebuhr. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah, Niebuhr was never a conservative. Mm -hmm. um, and... And I, I don't know. I mean, he was, I guess, the, in the latter part of his career, he was a bit sympathetic to, to uh, Burke's philosophy. But, but even that, it, it wasn't the entirety of Burke's philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that although he, you know, I've, I've, I haven't discovered any uh, of Niebuhr's writings where he mentions Thomas Paine, but I mentioned Thomas Paine because he was a contemporary of Edmund Burke. And 
and they did in fact meet and and in many ways some of their writings um mm -hmm. end up being a conversation with each other right with Payne being the radical and Burke being the more conservative but I I would think that that Niebuhr would be more much more aligned to Payne than to than to Burke um Niebuhr did not have a conservative bone in his body and um you know he he would he would go on to joke in 1952 that he felt bad for his daughter um, and, and his son because uh, for the first time in their lifetime, they were about to have a Republican president. <laughs> in Dwight Eisenhower, he said, I feel bad for my children. They, they don't know. Who what was barely a Republican, but yeah. Yeah, right. right. Can, <laughs> can you imagine what he would have? Well, I mean, we do know how he felt about Richard Nixon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and um, and he says something about uh, Billy Graham's connection to Neil. In fact, mm -hmm. I think that was his last article, hmm. um, the very last piece of writing. There, there was there was nothing. I really, I yeah, I I think that Niebuhr was much more aligned to left wing movements. Eli, I wonder if this is what makes kind of your project more important, because as we were talking about at the top of the show, how we tend to abstract Niebuhr and turning him into a theological, philosophical, that, that kind of removes his political teeth. You almost have to see his life, what you're doing, to see that this dude was never removed from this labor movement. Like it was always a part of his life, you know, um, and I think that kind of by, we've kind of declawed him a little bit whenever we abstract him and turn him into the theological philosophical guy. Yeah. Not the guy on the ground. I think, though, just even but then you have to incorporate things like, you know, politically speaking, I don't know that that's where how we would categorize him today, just because, like, I mean, just take the issue of Israel. Like, you know, he was a, a big advocate of creating a nation for Israel and like. Like, yeah. I mean, we talked about this with Gary Dorian that like he was, I think he showed up to the, was it Gary or was it, I can't remember. It was, it was Jeremy, but yeah. Jeremy, he basically, he showed up to like speak in favor of it and didn't even have a spot to sit there, but ended up getting one just because by happenstance and um, like was a big advocate of like the, um, forming the nation of Israel. So yeah. I wonder kind of where he would fall pol politically now, you know what I mean? Because I, I, again, like very committed to labor movement, but also the issues have changed. You know but what that, I mean? At the time that was quite progressive because he was standing up for Jews. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's such a weird, like, weird, <laughs> which dynamic was in a country that was still, it was very anti-Semitic that country, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's just like, and, and you know, it's interesting that, that when it comes to labor, Niebuhr was consistent throughout his career much more so that, than some of his other, you know, uh, I mean, obviously Niebuhr had several, right, uh, uh, transitions philosophically, theologically, but when it came to the importance that Niebuhr felt, right, uh, or, or the role that labor should play and, and, and was starting to play in American society, Niebuhr was, was consistent throughout. Mm -hmm. um, even in the late 50s, right before his retirement at Union, Niebuhr was writing about um, the merger of the AFL with the CIO. Um, and he provided a historical and philosophical black background of the AFL-CIO merger. Um, he spoke about the right to work laws pretty consistently, always favoring on the side of labor. So it's really fascinating. 
you know, I, I think Niebuhr would, um, would definitely be happy about um, the fact that that labor again is seen uh, positively by the majority of of Americans. That's a most recent survey showing that, mm. but something like fifty six, almost sixty percent of of the American public um, see labor as a uh, positive, right? As, right? as played an important role in in American society. And Niebuhr always felt that labor was a, a vehicle that could lead to and did in fact lead to economic equality or mm-hmm. or at least or could lead to that, but um, not economic equality, but economic empowerment mm-hmm. and growth. Um, and it just so happens we're just past Labor Day. So it, yes. it was just this week. Um, yes. Now, uh, my final question, um, in your final chapter, you state, and I'll quote you, while, while many thinkers made their contributions exclusively within the academy, Niebuhr understood that direct participation in the political world would be necessary to have a wider impact and truly bring forth social justice, particularly to those that, ha- that historically have been marginalized. So in contrast to many academics, we say this still to this day, Niebuhr was actually a lot like yourself, okay? It's, a, it's actually kind of crazy to see someone really living this kind of life uh, out with great success before us. And by crazy, I mean inspiring. Um, how much do you attribute kind of this focus on praxis, practical application of his theology? How much do you attribute this like his theology meeting politics to Niebuhr being a pastor. Um, and is that what separates him from other academics maybe? And same question goes to you, because I know that you are, you have the ear of pastors and you are, I believe, a pastor yourself. Wow, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a little stumped because I, I think just by, um, obviously Niebuhr does not say this, but, but just based on his actions, I, I, I don't think that Niebuhr would see the pastoral role separate from political praxis. Mm-hmm. One cannot be a pastor without political involvement, even for the fact that the church occupies public space. And because the church op- occupies public space, the pastor as a religious leader cannot afford to play a role within that public space. So the one goes with the other. Um, so, so I think that in many ways, yes, that, that perhaps his pastoral role um, was a key factor in, in how immersed Niebuhr became um, on all matters, you know, social and political. Um, and, 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 and I think he, he lived what David Tracy says ye many decades later, that theology has three publics, right? Um, the public, the wider public, the church, and the academy. And it's, it's interesting that Niebuhr is a scholar that traversed all three worlds, all three publics. He lived it. Um, he did it. And, and yeah, so I think that, especially as, as a man of the church, that he once was, um, he he could not see right a a, a an apolitical pastor. 
And could you speak personally about, I mean, because you are, I mean, you wear as many hats as Neighbor did, honestly, like everything I'm reading about you. Do you see like everything you do as kind of an extension of your vocation as a, as kind of a pastoral type figure? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I, I pastored for almost 17 years. Hmm. Um, I, I'm no longer pastoring, but yeah, I did it for almost 17 years. Um, it's funny. I remember a commercial growing up. Uh, it was a Michael Jordan commercial and there was the, uh, there was a, the lyrics for the, this uh, jingle was, I, I want to be like Mike. <laughs> uh, I never said I wanted to be like Mike. I, my jingle was, I want to be like Niebuhr. <laughs> and, and it's just, you know, I, I just, um, I saw his work as, I just, all I saw was relevancy, right? That's all. And, you know, Niebuhr was just relevant. And by relevant, I mean, not, not in the sense of, of feeling self-importance, but it is speaking to the times. It is saying something uh, that responds to, especially those that are marginalized. And you know, Niebuhr, as much as Cone, James Cone, who by the way was my academic advisor at Union, as much as he critiques Niebuhr in, in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, I have to say, and I don't know if anyone has said this publicly, but I'm going to say it. it. I, I took the Niebuhr seminar with Cone. Mm-hmm. Niebuhr was much more sympathetic. Uh, sorry, Cone was much more sympathetic uh, about Niebuhr in, in that seminar than he was in the book. In fact, Cone said the, his very first words in that seminar were, I read Niebuhr like I read James Baldwin. Wow. Uh, and that's high praise. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, that's huge. And, and, and Cohn would also say that, um, th- that the fact was that of all the white male theologians in Niebuhr's time, Niebuhr was really the only one that said something about race mm-hmm. because he saw the African-American plight as one that, um, and, and, and the community as one that, deserved and needed justice and you know i mean uh we we can't escape that by, by the way ronald stone is one that responds to niebuhr in his last book in stone's last book um on the race issue and and i mentioned this because niebuhr again uh saw his role as an academic and i and i believe also when he was a pastor just being on that commission on race um as, as one that must aspire to justice on behalf of those that need it most. And, 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 and that's what I have aspired to in my own, in my own world um, and my own work. And, and specifically as a, as a Latino in the United States, um, I have sought to um, give voice to an, an often forgotten group. Yeah. And, and I take that all from Niebuhr. That's yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I think Zach, your last question. Um, kind of already touched on it, but what are like if, just like concretely, if you had to go back and be a pastor and you had a group, a congregation, and they're looking for like a concrete way, like based on what Niebuhr did to bring a biblical conception of justice to their community, like a, a, a 
what, what are the concrete steps that like a, a practice, like a, a congregate could take? Not even necessarily like a, you know, I think journalism is hard because not everybody's gifted in that, but um, yeah, what, what are some concrete takeaways from this that you think could kind of be fleshed out that way? I think the, uh, the first would be um, to lead, well, I would lead the congregants in a uh, study on uh, the book of Amos, hmm. which was really important for Niebuhr. And, and in fact, the, many of the Hebrew scripture prophets, right? They were critical, uh, really important to Niebuhr's work. Um, and that was a, um, a cause for conversation between him and Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, by the way, there's a, there's a new book on Heschel by Julian Zelizer, a Princeton historian. And if you go to the index, Niebuhr is there as well, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, but, but the first thing is, um, is to understand justice by reading in part some of the uh, right Hebrew scripture prophets, but also it, it's secondly to be informed about the issues that impact us and just being informed in general, which again is critical to even Niebuhr's understanding of of democracy. Democracy cannot work without an informed citizenry. Um, so I think uh, being well-informed is, is another part, but then also being immersed, um, being immersed, being active in our communities, whether if you're a parent, getting involved as simple as getting involved in, in the local PTA, um, getting involved in, in a local school board. Uh, in 1999, I was 21 years old. Um, I was working for a state legislator in New York while I was in college and I decided to run for school board and I win. I was the youngest school board ever elected in the city of New York. I was 21 years old. Wow. And, um, but I saw that as an extension of, of my Christianity and my understanding of what being a Jesus follower is all about. I'm also taking a cue from, from Reinhold Niebuhr. And um, in, in my case, I won um, and I was a school board member for four years. It is doing that. I believe that's part of uh, discipleship. It is immersing oneself in, in the nitty gritty um, mm -hmm. because they're, um, uh, the gospel must be fleshed out as well. Mm. You know, I think what's interesting about those, I think that's probably one of the graver sins of, I would say, you know, because I'm just going to make a generalization here, but the gra graver sins of the evangelical church is not immersing themselves, right? Before they say something, you know, I mean, say something instead of being immersed, right? Because I think when you become immersed, you become aware of what the issues really are. And how, and you know, the struggles that are really going on, and I think it's really easy when you've abstracted to a church that has that isn't immersed, that isn't engaged in their local politics, to just kind of make these rash judgments from the outside that are kind of from this abstract ivory tower. But when you're immersed, it becomes a lot more difficult. But it also becomes like you know, your heart is in it, and you're actually engaged with people. And then you can't get enough of it. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's one realizes how important the work is and, and how much good can be done. I think that, that also drove Niebuhr. 
um, Niebuhr understood that, and we can see it through his work. Um, I mean, cool. look what he did post uh, World War II and being part of some committees in, in the, uh, that were involved, State, State Department led, that were involved in the, uh, the aftermath of, of the war in Germany. Yeah. And um, yeah, so Niebuhr understood that very well. And I even think about, you know, I think there's been a, a dieback in, like one of the things that really struck me about leaves from the Notebook of a Tame Cynic is his engagement with uh, uh, um, visitation. When he engages with people and he goes out and he does these visitations and he's actually like with them as they're dying and he's, you know, talking to them in these kind of dark moments of their life. And that's, again, that's just one small step of, he, he was aware of the, their plight, aware of the issues that were going on in those settings, so. The la last thing I would say about that, and I just, rem I remembered this, you know, Niebuhr does speak later on, I, I get close to the end of his career, he speaks about his Detroit experience and, and admirably, admirably so. He loved being a pastor. And I, and I wonder if he realized this even more after the fact mm -hmm. than while he was in the middle of his, of his pastorate in Detroit. But he speaks uh, so favorably about the, the uh, parish ministry setting and, and the work and the, and the families that he was able to, to touch and, and to be with. And, and I think it says a lot about um, the nature of, of pastoral work and, and its impact on people's lives. Uh, Niebuhr loved it. Niebuhr loved it. I got a quote here from Niebuhr. He says, I regret the immaturity with which I approach the problems and tasks of the ministry, but I do not regret the years devoted to the parish. There it is. Aaron, you want to close this out with a final question? I would love to. Um, so this is not going to be about neighbor per se, but you can tie neighbor into this. <laughs> so we're coming up to a pretty big cornerstone in our country in November and in the next few years following. What are your concerns leading up to November? And what are your hopes? Hmm. Yeah. My, my concern is this is is that uh, we are, I, I don't, I'll put it this way. I, I don't think that these, uh, the sentiments that have been declared publicly by many political leaders, I, I don't believe it's an exaggeration when they say that American democracy is, is literally at stake mm -hmm. with, with these elections. Um, I think we're living in really dangerous times um, in a way that perhaps would be foreign to Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, and I think he would have a lot to say. And by the way, I believe his, his work is, I would say probably, probably even more relevant now. I mean, you know, like if, if we go back to Children of Light and Children of Darkness, and though he may not have been thinking about specifically the, the American experiment, though, though it was there, but, but I, I think it, it, if, if, he, if he were around today, he was like, yeah, I, I'm talking about this experiment. Wow, yeah. And um, I would say that those are my, that's my, my greatest concern, that um, if we go back 
to a certain political party that has opened the doors um, to the possibilities of threatening our democratic way of life, then I think you know, this will lead the way to something that could be much worse in 2024. Eli, I got to ask, um, for a long time, Democrats always looked to the Latino community, the growing, the rapidly growing Latino community as being a kind of way out of um, some of the really dark, dark uh, political realities that we're facing because, you know, but what we've seen in some places like Texas and Florida, Latino communities are starting to bank right a little bit. Do you have any thoughts on this? And how can Niebuhr, I guess, kind of speak to this, uh, speak to your own people? Yeah, six out of 10 people voted for Joe Biden in the last presidential election. So 60%. Um, I, I, and, and I'm, I've, been, I've been writing a piece, I, I, I put it to the side because I gotta finish this book, but mm-hmm. Um, the piece is t- I've titled it tentative, is tentatively titled uh, Democrats Have a Latino Evangelical Problem. Hmm. And I believe that when it comes to Latinos in general, specifically the Latino electorate, the problem lies with Latino evangelicals in the sense that Latino evangelicals and the Latino evangelical tradition has wedded itself to a certain white Christian nationalist ideology. And I believe that when it comes to the Latino political reality, for me, that's my biggest concern. And and it is a concern because the Latino evangelical community is growing. So, and and in fact, numbers show that Latino Catholics, which they've, you know, Latino Catholicism has, historically, right, it had been the, the, the largest Christian tradition among Latinos, right, in terms of adherence. Um, that number is now reduced where Catholics are now just a plurality, Latino Catholics. Mm. Um, and that's because Latino evangelicals are growing. And that's, that's where my concern lies, that mm. if we already see a propensity for Latino evangelicals continuing to wed itself with white Christian ideology, nationalist ideology. And if the Latino evangelical community continues to grow, what will this say mm-hmm. about the future mm-hmm. voting prospects of these very Latinos? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's what, you know, I was, that's what I would say about that. that. That really concerns me. That's really um, interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. I, because before this, before the podcast started, Cliff and I were having a chat. We were looking at some numbers in mm-hmm. my office about Latino voting habits. Can't compare it from Hillary Clinton to Joe Biden, and Joe Biden lost a significant portion in some key battleground states. Um, but we were wondering, uh, you know, Nieper when he first started out was became very disillusioned with the German American. Um, sentiments of individual morality like all you gotta do is learn to tie your shoes and make your bed in the morning and you know the world we've put the rights and it's like well that's just not right um but this movement of latinos as you're saying to this white christian nationalism why is it that latinos are moving to this section 
to a group of people who often vilify and demonize your people based upon their skin color. Um, I mean, where they come from. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump said most Mexicans were rapists. (laughs) It's really mind boggling. And and if you speak to many, and I come from the, the Latino evangelical world, um, um, it, it, it is really mind boggling. And, and, and I've, and I've said that it, it is, I cannot understand how um, evangelicals that have been so gung-ho about personal morality, how mm-hmm. they're, they're willing to, to put that to the side for a president that has promised to appoint conservative judges mm-hmm. for the purposes of overturning Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've asked some, well, now that you got your wish. Right. What now? What now? Yeah. Right. What now? Um, but Aaron, I, I think that um, your question is, is a profound question. And there are historical roots. Um, I'll put it this way. And I've said it in a piece that I wrote for Political Theology Network. Um, white evangelicals. They evangelized Latin Americans. So um, I I would say Latino Protestants are a byproduct of white Protestant denominations, many of which still have their direct ties to those same white denominations. So I was brought up a Pentecostal uh, Church of God, the one based in Cleveland, Tennessee, almost I would say almost 70% of the membership of the church of God is in Latin America. Mm. But the hierarchy are white Southerners from Cleveland, Tennessee. Incredible. So, so I think that's at the root of, um, you know, it's kind of like there's a certain dependence um, that is based on a reality, a colonial reality. Yeah. And, a, and a conquest reality. Um, and, and, and there was a break from that. There was an indigenous element that was that Latinos added to their own um, theologizing and, and church work. But now there's a return to, I call it a return to Babylon. Um, there's a return to that, that parentage, right? That, that, mm-hmm. that, that colonialism yeah yes and and um it's concerning to me but yeah. Aaron, there there's a lot at play here and part yeah. of it is what i what i believe what i what i just described no, thanks for sharing that oh, that's really profound yeah and aaron i would add this is just one last thing here um you know i have a when i was at moody um i was a part of basically the, the only church i was a part of for a long period of time is i did a church plant in humble park in chicago oh wow yeah, it was a, it was a, a set, it was basically focused for second generation uh, Latinos. And what was really interesting though, is some of the dynamics that formed that kind of speak to kind of what you're getting at. Um, for instance, they would, there was another, there was a Hispanic church way out. It was probably like two hours by car way out. And they would send me, cause I was a Bible school student. They would send me out to teach youth group to these kids um, and I would get there and I'd be there for most of the service and I didn't speak any Spanish, but that was, the service was entirely in Spanish, but they wanted youth group to be done in English. 
Um, <laughs> and so, you know, you can keep, kind of see some of those dynamics, right? They're sending me out into the middle, into this Hispanic church, right? Where I have no, I have very limited experience working in that culture. You're a white dude. Yeah. A white yeah. dude. But they, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I'm dude. not trying to say, I, I'm going to be sensitive here, but just to say like, they saw something about me that they wanted to like, they wanted to teaching their kids. You know what I mean? There was some, there was some aspect, something like that was drawing me all the way from Chicago, mm. two hours out into the suburbs when, you know, they had a lot of faithful Christian people that were Hispanic that were there. Like what, why do you have me coming all the way out there? You know what I mean? What is it about me? Well, you know, it, it was a weird dynamic. You know what I mean? So it kind of reminds me when Cornell West speaks a lot about how black there's a, there's, Black people were so treated with such undignity, so um, treated so poorly, abused, um, dehumanized to such an extent that they began to not love themselves. And that they want in some way to emulate the people who vilify them in a way to, I guess, like reclaim their humanity in some respect. And I wonder, and I don't know if this is the case, Eli, so please correct me wrong, but maybe that is happening in some Latino communities as well, where the hierarchy of the churches are mostly white, and they may be trying to mirror that image. Is that something that may be happening? I, I think there's an element of that. Yeah. Sure, yeah, there is. Uh, <clears throat> there's definitely an element to that. Um <clears throat> there, I mean, there, there are lots of things I think that contribute to it. Um, you know, the commercialization of Christianity, which has um, just because of means and 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 resources available, are really at the hands of of you know white evangelicals, right? And and that culture um, gets passed down or infiltrated into others that are non-white, right? Um, and and again, I think there there I think the the effects and impact of colonial colonialism is is deeply in, embedded in in those realities as well. Um, and and obviously, I think yeah, issues of self worth um, is mixed in there, and you name it. But but and my biggest my biggest fear again is just specifically this white Christian nationalist right. idea, yeah. which yeah, is I, very I, dangerous. I kept on thinking this whole time. I feel really awkward. Three white guys yeah. talking about the problems of <laughs> Latino Americans when yeah. ultimately we are the problem and um, what we have been a part of and what we are helping sustain to a certain degree, like uh, unconsciously or not um, that like it's when we're talking about Latino problems, what we're really talking about is white problems. Like what, is, like, what is our deal, you know, and yeah. what are ways that we need to help um, correct this and, uh, within our sister churches or, you know, our evangelical brothers and sisters? What, what do we do? You know, um, I don't know. And maybe maybe we should save the sea lifer um, when we have <laughs> when we have you back on, because we will. Right. <laughs> Oh, I would love to. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> I would be honored. Yes. I, I can't wait till this book comes out so we can read it yeah, and uh, and and discuss it more. And maybe and... we could do the exact same thing we did for Jeremy Sabella's book. Yeah, chapter book. by chapter, and then have you on by the end of it. I would love that. Um, but you... yeah, so uh, well, thank you again, Eli. It was it's been a real pleasure. Um, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. 
We want to thank again, uh, Professor Eli Valentin for being with us today. And we'd like to thank the listeners for hanging around with us. Uh, please hit all the buttons, like, subscribe, write us a good review. Do uh, Those things really do help the show. So uh, make sure you do that. Also follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Niebuhr for news and updates and a cool little Niebuhr quote every now and again. All right, take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.